Welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I am your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show, I'm joined by Nicole Serdica, who is a former Division I soccer player at St. John's University back on the East Coast in New York, um, and is also a doctor of physical therapy and strength coach specializing in soccer performance, training, and rehab. She currently owns Serdica Physical Therapy and Performance and has extensive experience working with athletes of all ages. I was absolutely thrilled to bring Nicole on. We had a conversation on the phone a couple of weeks before we did the podcast, and she discussed some of the different soccer strategies that might influence uh, training loads in players. And the conversation went so well, I was like, you know what, I got to bring her on the show. We talk about reverse engineering all the time. Uh, in our field and how we need to look at the sport and then work our way back and obviously we can look at general things and understand kind of simple work to rest ratios and some of the position or some of the demands that might go into playing our sport but doing a real deep dive on reverse engineering is going to require us to actually look at each position and see what some of the requirements are and then also understand what the tactics and strategies of the coach that we're working for uh, we need to we need to understand those tactics and strategies um, in order to even get a deeper understanding of what's going to be required physically from each player. And Nicole did a great job just going into some basic strategies you might see in soccer and how that can affect various positions on the pitch uh, while playing. Then we talk about some training strategies that we can or interventions that we can um, lay out as strength and conditioning coaches to help benefit players within uh, their respective environments. And it was honestly one of the most fun discussions I've had on the podcast, especially when talking about something along these lines, which I think is so important today. Um, We are, of course, general physical preparation specialists, but the more we know about our particular sport, the more insight we can have and we can tweak and alter and fine tune some of our general interventions to make them a little bit more specific. And we can also provide feedback and input to coaches on certain practice habits they might have that might not actually fit with what their uh, game style is. And that's ultimately what we've become in some ways is not only are we doing some of the general adaptation stuff in the weight room, we can also almost work as an assistant coach or a quality control coach for uh, our coaches. And I think that's extremely valuable and something that uh, the more we can push uh, ourselves to do and, and have those conversations with sport coaches, the more value we're ultimately going to be able to provide, especially at higher levels of sport. So this was a crucial discussion, I felt like. We also talk about uh, taking care of the whole athlete, uh, which is something that obviously I discuss a lot in many of my presentations and, and articles. Um, we also talk about the current landscape of soccer in the U.S. And then we also uh, talk about uh, something that I think is very interesting and something I'm going to look into more Uh, We often talk about the four components that make up athleticism. Sometimes there are more depending on the models that you look at, but we look at the biological or physical side of things. We look at the tactical, technical development, uh, and then we can look at, you know, social and psychological factors, and then the overall encompassing mental factors that go into being um, a high-level athlete. And I think if we can understand where an athlete lives within those components and what they resonate with the most, Um, either in terms of the development that they need or what they prefer or gravitate towards, we can end up forming stronger connections with our athletes and 
putting forth better interventions for them as well. So I thought this was a great conversation all the way around. Nicole is absolutely awesome. She's making big moves up and down the sports performance industry, and I know her future is very bright. So it was a pleasure getting her on the show. Thanks a lot to her and hope you enjoy this conversation. Nicole, thank you so much for, uh, for joining the show here. Um, I had a great conversation with you. I think it was like a week and a half ago or so about some of the topics we're going to touch on today. And I, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I was like, you know what, we got, I got to talk about this more, dig a little deeper and then, uh, you know, let, let some other people hear about it too. So thank you for joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, that was a fun talk. Anytime I get to talk about soccer, it's a good time for me. So <laughs> yeah, I feel, um, honestly, I guess like just diving right into it. I feel like a lot of times reverse engineer is the, the buzzword of our times these days. And we all say it, including myself, without really kind of taking a step back and thinking what that means. Recently, for me, it's been talk to people like you who really know, uh, you know, their particular sport. Uh, and then also just watch a ton of video. I feel like that helps an awful lot, just kind of just going over things again and again and again and figuring out kind of some of the commonalities that you're seeing uh, from sport to sport and then kind of working back from there. But uh, for yourself, I mean... In our discussion, you talked a lot about uh, how different tactical, um, I guess, strategies in soccer can dictate uh, training loads or, I guess, match loads or performance loads in the sport. And I was wondering if you could just kind of like dig into that a little bit and, and we can, you know, just go from there. Yeah, so kind of, um, I guess, the, the foundation of this is that each position in soccer, which is also true in other sports, each position has different demands in the match. Um, a goalkeeper especially is not going to, ha going to have the same uh, physiological demands um, as any of the field players. And then strikers, midfielders, defenders, central players versus outside players, they're all going to have kind of different um, roles and therefore different physical attributes that help them to perform those roles. But then when we get a little bit deeper and dive deeper on that, we see that those positional demands vary based on the system of play that a team, a manager, a coach chooses to employ. Um, so, you know, I think it's a good starting point to learn about positional demands. I think that's definitely a good thing to be doing. And like you said, kind of re reverse engineer and, and track back from what those match demands are, because ultimately that's what we're trying to prepare our athletes for. Um, so knowing the, the positional demands, but when we look at some of those studies, like it, it's so contextual, right? Like um, a wide player in one system of play might have different responsibilities on the field and therefore physical demands than that same position in a different system of play. So when we look at studies that come out of, you know, Barcelona in La Liga, that style of play is very unique to them. Um, you know, teams try to emulate it, of course. Um, but that, that style of play is, it's the Barcelona way. That's how they played for years. And so the roles that players in different positions um, play is a little bit different than what, you know, Liverpool might do um, in the English Premier League. So it's, it's good to, it's a good starting point to know positional demands for sure, but just know that you can't always extrapolate that and apply it to your athlete and your team, because what your team does 
um, or the team of whatever athlete you're working with does may be very different than what um, the demands are that you're reading in that paper. 100%. Now, we had discussed a little bit how different formations are going to kind of dictate the loads uh, by the position. So do you want to dive into that a little bit? Just kind of what we talked about last week. Yes. So very simply, kind of two of the more basic um, and more prominent formations that teams will use, especially at the youth level, is a uh, 4-3-3, which is four defenders, three midfielders, and three attackers. Um, and then, of course, a goalkeeper. We just don't include them in the formational things, which is unfair, actually. <laughs> well, there's always just one of them. So, um, inequality. So poor, we gotta we gotta rectify right? this. Yeah, those poor goalkeepers. <laughs> They're always left out. Um, but so there's a four three three, and then there's also the four four two. Of course, there are so many different other um, variations of these and different types of formations. University of North Carolina, which has won so many national championships, um, the women's soccer team. They always use a 3-4-3, three, three. so there's a lot of different formations, but just sticking to the two basic 4-3-3 three, three and 4-4-2. Four, four, if we look at a position like the outside back, so if you're familiar with the U.S. Women's National Team, that, for example, would be a Crystal Dunn, right? Like she would be the main outside back, um, or Kelly O'Hara, Allie Krieger. These are all players who would play that outside back position. Now in a 4-3-3, um, the way most teams would set that up is the four across the back, the two outside backs play fairly wide and then the two center backs stay centralized. And the three midfielders are going to hang out together in kind of a triangle formation in the middle of the pitch. So that means that a lot of the space on the field is right in front of those outside backs. So most of the time, um, when teams use a 4-3-3 formation, they really rely on that outside back to get up and down the field. They're supposed to go up and join the attack, um, produce a lot of counterattacking um, moments in the game, and help provide an overload of attacking players on that side to overwhelm the defense. So um, those players, that position in that formation is going to cover a lot more ground, so a lot more total distances, and a lot more high-speed running distance than that same position would do in a 4-4-2. Um, because in a 4-4-2, now they have a midfielder right in front of them. So in that type of formation, the way it's typically set up, again, there's always variation, um, but typically it's the same four across the back, and then the four across the midfield, there are two outside midfielders now, and then two more centralized midfielders. And then the strikers stay more central usually as well. So now the space isn't necessarily in front of those outside backs, but it's now higher up the field in front of the outside midfielders. So now they're the ones who are taking on a lot of those higher distances, the high-speed running distances, and not the outside backs. So why that is kind of important? Well, first of all, it's important to be able to prepare your athlete for it. So if they say I'm an outside back um, and you're thinking that they're a defender, they're probably not doing much high speed running. Um, if they're in a 4-3-3, they will be. It's also important because, you know, at the collegiate level or whenever an athlete um, changes teams or changes levels, so goes from high school to college, college to pro, changes pro teams, or the professional team that they're on gets a new coach. 
um, anytime essentially that the team system may change. An outside back who's used to playing in a 4-4-2, who now goes to college and is playing outside back in a 4-3-3, she's gonna have very different demands placed on her. Um, and if she hasn't adequately prepared for that, that may be um, something that leads to injury down the road. It may be a contributing factor to injury. So those are all important things to consider. Are coaches on the soccer side aware of the differences? Uh, well, they're aware of the differences, obviously, but the, the physical toll that those differences can make. Yeah, uh, I, think, I, I think most are. Um, for example, like um, Marcelo Bielsa, who's now coaching Leeds United, who have just moved up into the Premier League. Um, he's, um, he's known for, for his high press style of play. It's called the Bielsa press. Um, like it's named after him. And he's influenced so many other coaches who utilize that kind of high press um, tactic. And so he does recognize that that takes – a lot um, of physical effort and also like mental psychological effort and a lot of mental focus for a very long period of time from the players. So I do think that most coaches, especially higher level coaches are certainly aware of that because it, you can see it in their recruitment of players. They then try to recruit players who can live up to those expectations and they know that they're demanding. Um, like you can watch on, on Amazon prime video, um, that take us home Leeds United, uh, docu-series and also the all or nothing Tottenham and Manchester city ones. Um, and I think in the, like in the Tottenham one, um, particularly Jose Mourinho says, uh, he's the manager of Tottenham. Now he says, you know, I know that I demand a lot. He knows that it, that it takes a toll on the players, whether a lot of youth, coaches are aware of it. I, I would say that probably a lot of standard youth coaches who just kind of get the entry coaching badges just to be able to coach, especially, you know, parents who just want to coach their kids, they probably aren't even aware of these higher level tactics to begin with. So um, whether or not they know the different demands, um, I'd be willing to bet no. So depending on what level athlete you work with is going to dictate whether or not the coach is really aware of that. What about on the recruiting side, like for, for U.S. college soccer, men, women, whatever? Um, let's say you have a coach that wants to get a certain, let's just use the outside back example, uh, but it's a poor fit. Do you see that happen a lot where all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, this is not what we were looking for. It doesn't fit our scheme. Like, is it one of those things where you just try to move them like inside then where the demands might replicate what they were in in high school or something like that? Is that something that you see happen a lot? Yeah, college is an interesting one. And granted, I have no experience coaching college. Um, I just played there. Um, and I have friends who coach in uh, just, college. Just played so. casually division one, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in my experience, as one being someone who is being recruited by colleges and the different meetings I had with different coaches about their playing style and things like that, um, I think some, again, some coaches are aware of it and some maybe aren't. And, and then there's the interesting factor of like in the recruiting process, there is one aspect where it's like, okay, this player is just such an outstanding player that I'm going to make the team fit around her strengths, right? Like if you get someone who's just a natural goal scorer, whether or not she fits into your system at the college level, like doesn't like you just need to get her right. And then there's also like, there could be someone who's a perfect, 
perfect fit for your system of play, but maybe not a good fit for the university, you know, academically. Um, so there's a lot of different factors at play. So I think that makes it a bit interesting in college. But for example, like I, I played um, attacking center mid my whole life and kind of my, what like my strengths were as a player were um, like the tactical side of the game, right? So um, I, was a, I was a good playmaker. Um, so when I was being recruited by, by a certain school that I didn't end up going to, um, and I'm sitting there and we're watching some, I, I watched a game with my dad first and then we sat and um, met with the head coach and he's telling me about how he loves their direct style of play. Well, direct style of play a lot of the times is going to completely bypass the midfield. Um, and that's what his team did. His team essentially kind of played very direct and played it over the top. And midfielders rarely touch the ball. So to tell someone who takes pride in being a playmaker, playing in the gaps and the spaces, um, and like kind of like, okay, I'm going to say that I was my style was similar to Roosevelt. I was nowhere near her level. Um, but <laughs> that style of play is kind of how sure. I tried to play. Um, just kind of like finding the seams and splitting the balls in, in there. Um, but, and, and this coach telling me that he wants me to be on the team, but his style of play, like I, I would never touch the ball in the game. So that to me was kind of a red flag and that was why I didn't go there. Um, so I think some coaches just try to like get certain people that would be good team members or are a good fit academically, good fit for the university. Maybe they see them being a good leader on the team um, um, or whatever else. But um, ultimately, like sometimes you're going to get someone who doesn't fit into your style and they either don't play or you try to change their role a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting because I know um, just reading some of the, what is it? Um, tactical periodization, I think it is. Yeah. right. And then like um, there's a soccer version of it too that I haven't read, complex football. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, just, I just got. Oh, here it is. Right here. Oh, sweet. You know, I'm gonna have to. <laughs> I've been looking for it everywhere, like slightly cheaper. So maybe I'll have to yeah. talk to you offline where you got it and see what. Price <laughs> it. So, um, uh, but no, yeah. So like looking at all those and 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 just kind of going over it, just seeing the different elements. Like I just love the aspect of like the human athlete, where we look at everything, and obviously like in the strength and conditioning world, I feel like so often we just get sucked into the biological side of things, the physical side of things. We don't look at like some of those like creative expression and all those other things that they talk about in these books. And you just summed it up perfectly right there. I mean, to, to recruit someone for the sake of something else, when it's going to be a poor fit, you know, throw the training loads out, throw that all this other stuff out, like the mental grind that's going to be to have to just work your way through something that's just not a fit is just, just sounds terrible. You know? Yeah. So. It's going to be frustrating for the coach, for the athlete. Um, you know, imagine being a, a and I, especially high school to college, right? Like imagine a, a 17, 18 year old kid who has dreamed of playing division one college soccer and they get recruited and, you know, obviously when a coach is recruiting a player, they're going to pump up the program and, and hype up the person and say like, oh yeah, like you can fit into this role here. Like we need you on our team, yada, yada, yada. Um, and they get there and it's a different story and they end up not getting playing time or not really seeing how they, how they have a role on the team. And that's really difficult because everyone wants to be playing. Of course, no athlete wants to just sit on the sideline. Um, but um, that can be really frustrating, yeah. And then 
when you talk about stress and psychological, you know, stress is stress. And so if a student athlete who's just moved away from home was expecting to get playing time and now isn't, um, has all kind of these new stressors of being a student athlete, um, usually increased training loads because usually they aren't used to training that much. Yeah, it's, uh, it's no wonder that uh, college freshmen and, and rookies in any league really kind of have higher injury um, rates and patterns. So it's, uh, it's definitely a lot on the athlete. And also, you know, to be completely fair here to the coaches is that sometimes you see an athlete who does so phenomenally well at the high school level, at the club level, and they get to college and something happens where it, it becomes too much for them and they never kind of grow into their potential. So whatever potential that coach saw in that athlete there, I mean, there's been players I know when I was in college, my coach recruited and he was so pumped about, and then they get there and we're like, really? Like this, you were excited about this? This one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> so is there, uh, just out of curiosity, like I spent a lot of time over the last year trying to marry up stressors, you know, between the sport and the training loads. And obviously, you know, in the back of the mind, there's always this, we have the psychological stress element. We have things we need to be cognizant of. And I think it's great to be cognizant and have conversations with that person and kind of get a feel for it. But is there any way, have you looked into or heard of anyone talking about any way to quantify it? I hate to say quantify, like mm. it's so vague, but I don't know. Like, have you, have you delved into that realm at all? Just quantifying the mental side of things? No, I mean, I think sometimes we can capture some of it with some of like the, the wellness or readiness scores that teams will look at. Um, because I think like psychological stress can manifest in so many different ways from person to person. Um, like for me, I'll have no idea that I'm stressed cause I'm really kind of a like calm, cool person. Like I had nothing, you know, riles me up all that much. But, um, so when I'm stressed, I don't really recognize it until, I have a physical manifestation. You're like of in it. it. Yeah, I'm the I'm yeah, actually like, the same way. I'm like, oh yeah. shit! Like, where did this come from? You know? Like, but when when Mark and I were planning our wedding, for example, like I started having really hard breathing problems. Like, I couldn't. I felt like I couldn't take a full inhalation, and I was like, "Gosh, I got I got to go to get my lungs checked." And Mark was like, "Has it occurred to you that maybe you're just stressed and overwhelmed?" And I was like, "Am I stressed?" <laughs> you know, like it didn't even occur to me that I was stressed. Um, but yeah, so so stress manifests, psychological stress manifests itself in many different ways in athletes, in, in humans. So I think it's difficult to objectively, objectively quantify. But I think, I mean, I think readiness scales are great. Um, wellness questionnaires, fantastic. Um, of course, it all depends on compliance to it. Are, are a lot of college athletes always, you know, taking the time to fill that out and, and answering it truthfully? Um, there can be kind of this fear of, oh, if I say I'm sore, is coach not going to play me? Um, you know, what, about, big... what about HRV? What do you think about that? Uh, the thing is that it can, I, it, I know that it can change um, so much with, like it changes with training. So if you're very well trained, but then you're really stressed, that's going to affect your HRV, right? But it, like, are we seeing that as a training adaptation or an acute response to stress? Um, 
So I think that there's, I think HR, like looking at HRV is definitely great, but I think that there's some limitations to it that we need to be aware of. And that's like with anything else, there's, as long as you're aware of the limitations of the data that you're collecting um, or the limitations of the tools that you're using to collect the data as well, that's another issue. Um, but I think that we really can't um, overestimate the, just having a good relationship with players and, and knowing them and saying like, recognizing that something is off with them. Um, I think that's something that my head coach in college was fantastic with. He would like, I was going through a tough period in my junior year and he just pulled me aside and was just like, all right, Nick, talk to me, what's going on? And like, I was, I was kind of like, what do you mean? You know? And he just kind of knew that something was off um, and it was coming through in how I was training and playing. So <laughs> I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Of course, collecting objective data is always helpful, but we need to tie that into the bigger picture of what the athlete, the human in front of you looks like. I love that. Um, I was actually having a great conversation. I cannot remember with who now. I've had so many recently, which is awesome. But, uh, but yeah. um, we were talking about how we need to draw the athlete's attention like into themselves sometimes because we're just in a world where we're just so bomb especially we talk about someone making the jump to the next level um they're so bombarded with just so many stimuli be it their phones be it people needing something be it family whatever it is um and while all those things are well and good and have their place I do feel like it's funny, like even myself, I've realized over the last little bit, like I always thought I was pretty good at self-reflection and I just got into like some Wim Hof type stuff and everything and like mm -hmm. stuff I never would have considered doing like 10 years ago. Like, I would never do that. But, um, <laughs> but now I am. And it's all of a sudden like, man, like if I just check in on myself for like 10 minutes a day, assess where I'm at. And then if I have like a strategy, like simple, like just being grateful for picking something that I'm grateful for and thinking about it for two minutes or something like that. If I just do those things, it drastically alters my perception. It drastically alters like my ability to be good at something. Um, and then furthermore, I mean, even then, like, you know, I work, you, you and I both, I think right now work with a ton of young athletes, just getting them to think about like what they're doing in a set instead of waiting for me to tell them what to do. Like sometimes you tell them like, you know what you did there? And they're like, well, why don't you tell me? And I'm like, well, no, how about you think about it a little bit? Like you, this is your thing as much as it is mine. Like I'm not out there with you on the field. Like I'm not out there with you this other 23 hours a day, you know, um, just creating like self-reliance on yourself to check in on yourself and like know when to, uh, you know, make changes or to have a strategy to make things better. Right. Yeah, definitely. When I was in college, actually, I was super lucky. Um, I really can't say enough good things about like my experience, um, as a student athlete, but our, our assistant coach, who's actually now the head coach at NYU um, in New York, but she, when she was our assistant coach, she and the, our, our school had a sports psychiatrist um, that we were able to utilize, or a sports psychologist. Um, so we were able to utilize his services, and our assistant coach was really, really tuned in to that aspect of the game. Because, again, like, we go back to, like, the marriage of tactical, the tactical side of the game with the physical side of the game. There's four key components um, of, the, of the game. It's the tactical, the technical, the physical, and the mental or the psychological. And we really can't separate any of those one things, um, you know, without it being related in some way to the other three. And so just kind of being able to to address the psychological component of the game for me was huge and and utilizing our assistant coach and our sports psychologist um they actually 
taught our sports psychologist taught a group of us transcendental meditation when we were in college and that was kind of a game changer for me um i i don't do it as much as i should um i still sometimes though when i like start to get those physical manifestations of stress i'm like okay let me take 20 minutes and and practice my my tm again um and i what what is that exactly so transcendental meditation is kind of a way of it's it's you you have a a mantra or a a key phrase and it's it's in sanskrit so it the point is that it's a word that you don't know the meaning of because it's in sanskrit and it's given to you by whoever teaches you tm um and you just kind of repeat that over and over um without thinking of anything else so it's the idea that you're absent of thought but if a thought does come up you don't judge it you just kind of you're like a rock in a riverbed and the water just flows over you the the thoughts and emotions just pass over you without you clinging on to them um so that's kind of like the at least how i learned it (laughs) that's kind of the basis of it um and and that that sanskrit word is just meant to kind of anchor you and and bring you back to so if your thoughts do start to wander and you start to recognize that you're having kind of thoughts and emotions you use that mantra as a way to just get back into your meditation um so that was really helpful and they also taught us a lot of strategies like um when you make a mistake on the field for example like do something like snap or clap or do something a physical thing that takes you out of that moment and puts you back in the present because if you're just you know thinking about it and and you know perseverating on that mistake you can't move on in the game so um so it's so yeah, almost I like almost that, like expression over depression like acknowledge it like move exactly on. and yeah. then you're yeah, yeah. Because like in the moment of the game is not the time to analyze your mistakes. That's what you do after a game. In the game, you have to have a short-term memory and just quickly forget about your mistake and move on to the next thing. Obviously, don't keep repeating it, but but you need to, <laughs> to move on and, and just do better next time. Um, so yeah, they taught us a, a bunch of strategies that uh, were super helpful to me. Um, I think my teammates probably as well. Now, um we talked about those four components. I love that. That's like something I've really been on recently. Do you find, and you, cause you've worked with a ton of people, obviously, do you find that sometimes the strength and conditioning size, like the ju- side, the juice isn't necessarily worth the squeeze. And you find another one of those components that an athlete's going to gravitate to more that you can either put the right person in their path to help them with it. Or you can maybe even like have an intervention in that component. I think it depends on the setting you work in, right? So if you're working in a, in a team setting and there's an athlete who, you know, just isn't really bought into the strength and conditioning program, you just kind of like goes through the motions and does the bare minimum, um, which there's always some because they're actually in soccer, there's not a strong culture of weightlifting. Um, it's, I think it's starting to shift. Uh, I'm hopeful that it is, but historically the culture of, of it is not great. Um, so, I mean, within those four pillars, let's say that like, I don't like if we think about like a Venn diagram, right? Like with four, those four components, each player is going to be made up of, or have their strengths lie in different proportions for those four different components. So for me, like, I would say that I was probably weakest in the in the mental side of the game um the psychological side I was somebody who like perseverated on mistakes and 
I was such a soccer purist because the tactical side of the game was my like biggest strong point. Um, so because I was such a soccer purist, if I didn't play the perfect pass, I would be like so angry with myself and I just couldn't get past that because to me the game had to be played beautifully and if I wasn't doing that it wasn't worth playing um <laughs> I love that so, it's, it's honestly so much how I am <laughs> yes I get uh, it yeah so that's how that's how I was as a, as a soccer player um but I was kind of one of those players who was always told like you'll make a better coach than player <laughs> so there's each what my point to this is that each person like within those four components my percentage of tactical was much bigger than my percentage of psychological which in the setting of big east women's soccer even though i love the strength and conditioning side of it like and and i thrived in the weight room on the field i was small and slow for for my conference um so the physical side also had a smaller percentage. So my technical and, and my um, tactical percentages were much larger. And every single player is going to have their own makeup of those four factors with different percentages. So if somebody's strengths lie in their technical ability, it's kind of a, a game of, okay, do we what, where is our time best spent with this athlete? And that's kind of what, like, that's the head coach's role, right? And the player to come to that decision. Am I best served by making my strengths absolute strengths and nobody in the league will be better than me in this, in this thing? Or do you become more of a well-rounded and spend more time on your weaknesses? I think that's kind of a philosophical debate is which one do you prefer? Um, but yeah, so I, I think that that's fine. But if your job is the strength and conditioning coach, then like that's your job and that's what you do. You're not a technical coach. You're not doing tactical analysis with the players. So your job is then to just get the players ready for the match demands as best you can um, with your strength and conditioning program. So yeah, I think it depends on the setting and, and what your role within that setting is. Yeah, it's such a, it's something I go over a lot because I, I, I firmly believe in what I do and I know you do as well. And I think it's extremely effective, but I do also know that like, if someone's brain is not on the level where they're going to accept what we're offering, it might really not be what's best for them, like at least initially. So it's kind of the, that game where it's like, I could talk to this guy. What can I talk to him about that will get him to, you know, know that I'm on his side. Uh, maybe he'll never lift at the capacity that I want him to, but what can I get out of him and how much is going to be useful? You know, mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's such a, it's just an interesting, I love the way you're putting it. It's just very interesting to, to be able to kind of profile player along those components and then figure out, where he or she is best going to be served in our interventions, especially when, like you said, everything's so specialized. Now it's our job to take care of the physical side. And yet there are many, you know, people I've encountered at higher levels when I've worked in the pro setting and everything where it's like, I watch and I'm like, man, we're just not getting what we need out of this. You know what I'm saying? But we yeah. have to do it because it's our job. <laughs> so. And I think like framing it in a way for the athletes um, to show like, Hey, like, if you like I saw that in the game you know and this is where just kind of like being around your team and getting to know your players is important no matter what role you serve within that team um or for that athlete if you're not in a team setting was hey I went to your game over the weekend and I noticed that 
when you had the ball and, and you're taking someone on, they caught up to you pretty quickly once you got past them and were able to take it away. How about we work on your acceleration and your first step so that after you beat that defender, you can get past them really quickly. Get like, find a way to get them bought. And you're not going to get everyone bought into the program and that's fine. Um, as long as you're preparing them, you know, as best you can. But um, I think framing it in that way is often really helpful. I, I wish framing it in a way of like, hey, this will help reduce your risk of injury. I wish that was helpful. It's not usually because athletes don't care about I'm not hurt that. now, so I'll never <laughs> yeah, be yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> that nobody cares about injury prevention until they're injured. Um, but I think educating on, of course, like, hey, this will reduce your risk of injury is important to say. Um, not everyone will be sold on that. But yeah, if you can frame it in a way that's because our, our ultimate role isn't to make them power lifters, isn't to make them, we're not trying to make someone the best deadlifter on the West Coast. We're trying to make them better at their sport. We're trying to help them do their sport better. Um, and I think that that's really important for us to always remember is that it's not about them getting PRs in the weight room. They, most athletes don't care at all about that. What they care about is how is this helping me play soccer? Um, so if we can kind of explain it to them in terms of how it will do that, I think we can be more effective in getting some buy-in. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I, I completely agree. And I, Oh yeah, I'm gonna have to do some thinking on that. That other thing, that other thing we just talked about there, because that's actually a really cool concept to be able to maybe profile players in a way where you can kind of see where their strengths lie, where you can best reach them, and that's ultimately what it's all about. Like how, like you said, how can I get them to come to their own realization that we might be more helpful than they initially thought? You know? Yeah, and that empowers them too, and makes them think about themselves and makes them self-reflect. If you ask their input on that, like, hey, what are I, this is something I ask every single one of my athletes in the initial session is, what are your strengths as a player? And they'll tell me, oh, I'm I'm the person on the field who wins air balls. I win 50-50s. I'm the tough, aggressive force on the field. Um, or like, I'm, I'm the goal scorer, I'm crafty, uh, I'm a natural goal scorer. You know, what are their strengths? Because that's what's important to them. That's what makes the game fun for them. Um, and then try to tie things into those strengths. Of course, we want to address their weaknesses as well. Like, you know, when I ask an athlete, what, would you, what do you want to improve on? Most of them, it's so I want to improve my speed. Um, okay, great. We'll definitely do that. And also we're going to make sure your strengths stay strengths because that's what's fun for them is what they're good at. So um, I think that helps, you know, get them sold on the program as well as, and, and, and you know, trusting me too, that what I want is for them to be better soccer players um, and not just good in the weight room is, Hey, we're relating this to your performance and you're a big, strong center back who wins balls in the air cool, we're doing a lot of strength work and a lot of power work to keep it that way. And they can see a direct correlation when you do that. Do you think, um, call it culturally, I don't know about like internationally, but at least in American, like strength and conditioning, or maybe just coaching in general, do you think we, there tends to be an overemphasis on like focusing on weakness, like weaknesses as players? Oh, I, I, I think about this often. Um, like the, it's like this age old debate that I, ha I, constantly change my mind on is like 
should we focus more on our strengths or more on our weaknesses? Um, and of course, the answer is probably somewhere in, in between, um, of course. I do think that there's a lot of power and value in playing to your strengths um, in, you know, in the weight room, on the soccer field, and in life. You know, you play to your strengths. That There comes a point where maybe it's not worth your it's there's no there's not a great return on investment for the time spent on something that maybe genetically or whatever else you're just not going to be great at exactly um, <laughs> like there's no point in me ever trying to train to be a professional basketball player I can't jump to save my life and I'm five five on a good day so like there it's it's not in the cards for me um maybe I would have been decent had I started training you know for it from a young age but it, it just was it wasn't in the cards for me and I think that that's um that's a realistic viewpoint to have and you play to your strengths and I think that that's fine but then also, of course, we have to try to improve our weaknesses, right? So yeah, I guess my long-winded answer is I don't have an answer for that because uh, I'm, I'm always arguing with myself on, on what I think. I think I lean more towards play to your strengths. Um, of course, you want to be well-rounded well and you don't want to neglect your weaknesses. Um, I, like one of my weaknesses, for example, is, like just as a person is like, I'm very much a big picture person. Um, and sometimes the minutia gets lost on me. And, and so that's an important skill to have. I have to be able to uh, remember the details and think about the details and the small steps along the way. I'm so there with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> such a big picture person. Way, yeah. Like I have, to, if I'm going to do something, I have to be able to tie it to a bigger picture. Um, but so I've had to find a way to make the smaller tasks meaningful for me and to, to make those important um, and to remember them. <laughs> so, so I've had to address a weakness in that sense, um, which I think I've done okay with recently. <laughs> um, <laughs> calendar, calendars and to-do lists, that's, that's how I do it. Um, but yeah, so I like, we do have to address weaknesses, but I think overall, it, I think we're probably best served playing to our strengths. No, I, uh, I, I kind of agree with you there, I think, on that for sure. I, I just get very worried sometimes when I see like kids not, and they're not, you're not always supposed to have fun. I get it. So it's, it's always fun right. to balance, but like kids not having fun in a training environment, like a lot. And, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's like, well, this is not the way this is supposed to be. Like, yeah, you've got to figure something out to make you enjoy this process more. There's just no way you're going to stick with it. you know. <laughs> and especially kids, like burnout is one of the top reasons for kids stopping sports. And just think about like big picture, right? Like I, I always tend to get kind of wrapped up in soccer being like this huge life or death thing. Like, <laughs> and, like it's not, of course, it's a game. It's, it's 22 people on a piece of grass kicking a ball back and forth. Like it's, it's not the end of the world. Um, and the, the, the whole purpose of kids playing sports should be fun. And then of course the health benefits. Um, and if we overburden them and make them not enjoy the process from a young age, we deny them the privilege of enjoying such an amazing sport. Um, and, and all the health benefits and social benefits and all of the things that come along with it. Um, so I think from a young age, I actually through the, through us soccer, like the coaching courses, 
they do talk about like, you know, certain age groups training for fun. And then once you reach a certain age, I think they say like 13, teaching kids to that training to train, like the purpose of training is to get better. And then when they're, you know, 17, 18, training to perform and kind of making that delineation between the, the purpose behind training. Yeah, anything before the age of like 13, I'm like, if, if it's not fun, like that, there's no point at all. Um, I'm curious about this, like technical development of players, just based on what you said there, like train to perform when you hit 17 or 18. So is the like handbook kind of philosophy on this? technical development should be pretty much like complete or close to complete by that point. Um, well, it's never going to be complete. Um, you know, even professionals are consistently working on like okay. their technique and they're like learning a new skill. Um, so the kind of the, the doctrine on this is not like technical kind of development ends at a certain point. Um, but I would imagine like opportunities might be a little more limited just because there's more matches probably much yeah. more plan focused during practice. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's it's just more of like a, like from in your adolescence, you're training to train to like, to, to improve for development purposes. Once you're at 18, 19, you know, you're training to win, like results become important then. So kind of the whole, the whole point, the whole premise is that when you're 10 years old, when you're 13, when you're 15, the result of the game shouldn't matter as much as the player's development. Um, and so then of, of course, eventually, if you're playing at a um, high enough level of competition, results do become important. And so you have to train with that in mind. And that's what the training to perform is all about is that, you know, okay, now how we're training to beat this team. Um, what are we going to do in training today that is going to help us prepare for our game on the weekend against this specific team and what they specifically do and how are we going to beat that? No, that makes total sense. So a lot more tactical, tactical based than in that sense, obviously right. you're not throwing like technical, you know, maintenance or improvement out the window, but just the focus kind of shifts. That makes a ton of sense. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we were supposed to just be talking about uh, about our original question, so I will drag <laughs> it back over there. I do this all the time. This is just the way my podcast goes. I just kind of get caught up in something. We just that's good. It should just be kind of conversational. Loop it back, I guess. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, I am curious. This is a very nitty gritty question, all the way back from our original thing. Mm -hmm. we, we you talked about adding um, for making taking a four three three and turning it into a four two two or four something. four two. Thank, yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in that, that is taking away some of the spatial responsibilities for outside backs, right? Now, would this also mean, though, despite the fact that we might have more need for the outside midfielders to be more vertical, it would take away some of the weak side midfielders' responsibilities in forming that triangle, right? I'm just... Depends on yeah. on the team and how they play. Like some, so my college team, for example, we played on a very wide field, um, and so what made it really difficult for opponents when they came to play at our home field was the width, and we took full advantage of that width by playing a four four two, and having um, the wide midfielders stay really wide to kind of spread out the other team's defense. 
Um, there are teams that will kind of have that outside midfielder pull in, especially defensively. There's times where they just have to, out of necessity, they have to kind of pull in. Or what they'll do is the back four will stay more compact. And so let's say the ball's on the on the left side of the field, and that left outside midfielder is the first defender. So they're the one that's attacking the ball and, and the opponent with the ball. Then the back four stays compact and slides over towards that side together, kind of forming like a backwards Nike check mark where it'll be like the second defender, third defender, and like the back four, the last person kind of comes up a little bit so they can see everything. Um, and then that outside midfielder, again, depending on what the team situation is and what the opponent for, opponent's formation is and their style of play, will either pull in towards the center of the field if there's an extra midfielder on the opposing team, or they'll come back to the far side of that weak side outside back um, and kind of play in that back line. So it all, it, okay. it all depends on like what the tactics of that game is asking of, of that player. Um, and it'll change game to game. Like again, for my college team, there are times that defensively we had to come in, like if the other team was playing a three, five, two, for example, and had numbers in the middle of the field, then that weak side midfielder did have to pull in centrally to help I defend. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if they're playing a four, three, three, and they have more of an overload towards the front of the field, then they would kind of loop around as, almost like a fifth person in that back line. Got you. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And, and I know really nothing about soccer. I just kind of just piecing this together. <laughs> You're asking conversation. good questions. Okay. I really, I really just kind of piece it together. I see, I guess I've just watched enough sports. I just, uh, completely, so, um, now when I know this is very, this is kind of a specific question, but what are some training considered? Let's just take the, the four, the two basic formations that we talked about. Uh, what are some like maybe differences in training considerations you'd give just very general uh, based for these, let's say these outside backs based on what they're in. Right. So if, if the outside back is playing in a, in a four, three, three, they're going to have higher demands of high speed running um, and high speed running distances. So what's something if, if I'm trying to design a program, obviously I'm going to train, um, a, a general aerobic capacity, right? That's important because they're covering a lot of distances. I'm going to work on their um, high speed running distance capacity, their speed um, so that they can hit higher speeds when they're running. Um, and then also um, if we think about like injury risk profiling, right? One of the most common injuries in soccer players are hamstring strain injuries. And we know that kind of peaks in high speed running loads is a risk factor for hamstring injuries. So I'm going to make sure that I'm strengthening their hamstrings a lot too. Um, so kind of thinking about like how those demands, what those demands look like for that player and then what those demands mean from an injury um, point of view and what, what kind of um, injury profile that person is, is set up for based on the position and their demands um, and the sport in general. And then programming and training based off of that. Will you um, now? Granted, we don't have match data for like all teams everywhere or anything like right. that. But you can. I, I, will you alter maybe distances traveled in training at top speeds if you're able to do that based on these 
these tactical differences. Yeah, and so actually there was just a, a study that came out, it was really good. Oh, I, I forget who it was by. Anyway, it might have been by Martin Bouchette, but I could be wrong. Anyway, they looked I'll at- I'll let you know if you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they looked at the high speed demands in trainings and in games. Um, and what they found was that in their, that soccer players aren't really hitting high speeds, their, their max speeds um, as often as we think they are, right? So they're not really hitting max, not every soccer player is hitting max speed in every game. And so if we're just looking at like average match demands, for example, over the course of a season, um, and, and we see like the average max speed is whatever it is, that may not be their actual max speed over the course of the season, right? Right, it's just the average. So what they found is that they're not hitting max speeds often enough. And so maybe in training sessions, there's a day that like, outside of the, the soccer training, we just need our athletes to hit their max speed because they've not done it in seven, eight, nine, ten days. And we don't want them to lose that capacity. And we don't want them to lose that capacity because then when they go to get into the game where they have to hit their max speed, they either A, can't, or B, get injured. Um, or both <laughs> get injured in the process of not being able to. Um, so things like that are, are training considerations. Like, making sure whether it's once every seven days, every 10 days, whatever it is that you have players hit their max speed. And if it doesn't happen in training, then it has to happen outside of training, but it has to happen one way or the other. And so if you're working with a team where the head coach has them do a lot of small sided games and that's all they do in the week, they're not going to hit their max speed. And, and so you need to make sure that they do. I, I feel like working in a team setting, this is going to be different working in private sector with individual athletes. When, when you're with a high school, college, or professional team, I think that a big part of our role is seeing what, um, what gaps there are. So what are they doing with their soccer training and what gaps are there that we still need to address? And that's what we do. Ideally, they're hitting all of the demands um, and, and getting all the tissue adaptations that we're looking for in their soccer training. That would be the ideal situation. And tactical periodization aims to do that. Um, but there's still going to be things that, you know, the best program has to be flexible because there's going to be times that they aren't able to because now instead of one game a week, there's two or um, a game gets postponed or canceled or whatever else, or they've had to travel a further distance. And so um, there's times that that needs to change and you need to just hit that other demand outside of the training session. Um, I am curious about this too, then would you place in terms of ramping up for a season, let's say, would you place more emphasis on repeat sprint ability at like, I don't want to say sub-maximal. I mean, we're still, let's say we're intensive tempo type work or something like that. Repeat sprint ability at like 85% of max velocity uh, and ramping up to a specific amount of distance based on wherever, you know, these players you expect each position to be at. Or would you place more emphasis on more of a, like a speed reserve concept where we're touching max velocity more frequently? Um, I guess that's kind of the question there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends on how far out from the season we are. Um, I think 
you know, for and how long the preseason is. So in early preseason, um, I'm going to look for more kind of general adaptations, so more aerobic capacity, start building up repeated sprint ability. And then once we're in the season, because we're likely going to be um, – kind of more micro dosing. So that's when I care about higher intensity and less volume. So kind of initially it's a, I care more about training increased volume um, and maybe not as high intensity, especially early preseason when I don't know what players were doing during the off season on their own. Um, there's what they say they did and then there's what they actually did. Um, not to so, mention with soccer, they're probably playing in like 18 different teams and in and out at all this nonsense. Especially, so. <laughs> like, like if you look at the NWSL, right, like there's some players who play professionally in the NWSL from April to October and then move to Australia and play in their league there, their professional league, until they have to come back in March for the NWSL again. So they're playing in two professional leagues, on opposite sides of the world. So like their off season, there is no off season. So like they're coming in to a preseason, which is really just kind of the post season for their previous it's season. Rolling on into the next one. Yeah, yeah, it's absurd. Um, so especially in the women's game, um, I would say that that's an issue. But yeah, early in preseason, when they first come back, I'm definitely looking more at increasing their volume. And then as we get closer to this season, that's when I care more about increasing the intensity and the speeds. And then once we're in season, making sure we hit those max speeds every seven to 10 days. Yeah, I think for me, that is definitely, I think about this a lot in terms of like, Again, time is a huge constraint. So in a perfect world, how I would want to do it, it probably is not possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just, I feel it's so important to spend at least like you got to like acceleration is obviously like one thing. And I think like you said, in, if you take that tactical periodization approach, most of these athletes are playing their sports so much they're working on that. So unless you need to like fine tune some technical things for them on that end, I don't think it's quite as important to touch. But on the flip side, like, I just, I find like before you get to the season, I'd like to be able to accumulate some sort of yardage or meters mm -hmm. at a high, at, at max speed, specifically for that hamstring yeah. injury prevention that we're talking about. Um, and I don't know, like, if that, do you, do you think that's feasible just given the constraint of time or is that like uh, something that's too risky to do or, or what, do, I what think are your it's thoughts on that? I think it's definitely feasible, um, dep again, depending on how, like, if you're working with a college team who has maybe 10 days to 14 days of a preseason before they play in their first friendly. It's been a while I since I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's enough time. Of course, though, like, then we have the college teams, they come in first day, they're doing fitness testing, and some of them are hitting their current max speed um, at that point in time, which hopefully isn't their max speed at towards the middle of the season, but, um, sometimes it is. Um, so, so, um, I think, I think that this is changing as well. I think this is getting better, but certainly when I was a college athlete, you know, there were the people who weren't fit for the season who came into a two, a literal two week preseason failed fitness tests, and then had to do extra fitness sessions on top of the, the soccer sessions we are already doing. So now we're taking someone who isn't prepared for the season for, for the demands of the game. Um, and because obviously they haven't worked hard enough in the off season and now 
boosting up their training load uh, way more than what they they can handle. And we would see a lot of injuries um, right around like two to three weeks after reporting for preseason camp. I don't think it happens that way quite as much anymore, probably in some uh, lower level leagues or, or lower competition um, or in schools that aren't um, like fully OCD funded. It still happens. <laughs> I'm sure it does still happen. Yeah. And I'm sure high, I mean, we know high schools, I mean, look at people dying from heat stroke. So obviously proper precautions aren't, aren't taken all the time. Um, so I think that that's still an issue. I think in higher level D1 schools, it's probably hopefully changing and not quite so much of an issue anymore. Um, yeah, it, if you only have a two-week preseason, you're not going to be able to, to do that. Now, if you have six weeks, eight weeks, ideally around something around six weeks would be nice. Um, then maybe by the end you can be – I think at some point you do need to hit the max speeds for sure um, and get them used to that. I, I do think that there's value in training athletes for the worst-case scenario that they're going to face on the pitch. Um, and so we do need to train them for that. I personally try to build up some volume first and then, and then do that. Of course, we're still working on speed, but just not speed volume yet. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And it's, it's such a fine line too. Cause I, I think I'm coming at this with a American football perspective where you usually get an extended off season. The, the game load is just, I mean, the actual game itself, the demands are insane, but the, the actual, the game load itself is not nearly as high. Um, and you have these windows to really work on max speed and like take like a speed reserve concept and work your way from max speed on down where these submaximal speeds start to get better. Soccer is just a different game. I'm glad we're talking about this because it's making me realize that, you know, again, based on the constraints of a soccer offseason, the same thing might not necessarily be feasible. So yeah. And in an ideal world in the off season, they're following their packet, their program, and, and they're building up their aerobic capacity abilities that in preseason you are able to do that. Um, but at, like, unfortunately, a lot of times what their offseason consists of is playing more games. Um, and, and so for better or worse, I mean, that's, that's good for them to be getting games. I mean, they're exposing themselves to match demands by doing that. So that's good, but it might hamper our ability as, as fitness coaches, as strength and conditioning coaches to implement a type of program that we would ideally want to implement, <laughs> which is why actually I enjoy working with injured athletes because they can't play. So this is like, that's the <laughs> chance. Full control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That like, I love working with long-term rehab athletes, like ACL injuries, um, significant hamstring strains, calf strains, things like that, because they can't play. They can't kind of mess with the loads I'm trying to implement. And so um, you can really systematically approach that. Hey, is there, you know, a weak spot in your training or in, in your um, player profile well, now's our chance to work on that. Are your, you know, sprinting mechanics not ideal? Well, hey, we have plenty of time to work on that. So that's what I enjoy about working with injured athletes. No, I think, I think that's great. And yeah, definitely there's, if the athlete's taking it seriously, there's a really good room to, for opportunity just to grow at like every potential level there, which is, yeah. which is phenomenal. So um, do you have more time? I don't want to, I know you I usually go an yeah, hour, but go, I'm, I'm enjoying this. Want. I have more questions. So. <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I was curious, um, in light of this, where you're working with, um, you know, you're kind of working more of the private sector right now, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, 
how do you go about managing uh, the fact that some of these players are going to be working with multiple entities, um, just be mm-hmm. it on the sports side, the training side, whatever. What's some things you've learned in that process that's helped you like streamline things better between all parties involved? Yeah, that's been the biggest um, kind of crux of, of working in the private sector is trying to get all parties on the same page. Um, I think that what helps me sometimes is the fact that I do have a soccer background. Um, and so I'm able to kind of speak that language to the sport coaches, to the soccer coaches and, and say like, Hey, I understand what you're trying to do here. Um, how can I help you do that with this athlete? So that's been helpful. Just kind of having open communication. Um, there are times that the coach doesn't care to talk to me and that's fine too. I hate when um, that happens. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I get it. It's fine. Like, you know, especially if they're, you know, an accountant or lawyer by day and coaching this team by night. Oh, that's know, fair. That's fair. Yeah. I didn't they don't, like, they, don't really, they have a family to spend time with, like getting on the phone to talk to me is probably not going to be a, a priority to them, which is fair. That's fine. Um, but yeah, so something that I think is really easy to do um and and effective is if you don't have control over like what the athlete is doing like get this the stat sport um apex athlete series and like it's not expensive you know if like your clinic if you're a physical therapist or whatever like if you have an ultrasound machine that's thousands of dollars like you can spend what, like two hundred dollars on on this this gps monitor so you can give it to the athlete Um, that you're working with and have them wear it during the course of a week, like as they train, as they play in a game, if they're able to, sometimes they're not allowed to. With girls, it's easier because they just like put it over top of their sports bra. Um, With guys, sometimes it's a little, like sometimes the ref thinks they're wearing something hard and then they can't in the youth level. Um, But you can give it to them and see what their, their load loading pattern is going to look like over the course of the week um and you can just have them like send you the data from from their phone into the app or if you see them on a wednesday download like the three sessions that they've already done that week and then give it to them for the rest whatever now if you're working with an injured athlete and trying to gauge okay what are the loads that this athlete is going to be facing once they're back with their team but they can't yet train with their team so how do i get that have them give it to a player on their team who plays the same position or has a similar style to that player um, and have them wear it during a week of training. And again, just download the metrics through the app on your phone. It's super easy and user-friendly. I'm not endorsed by them, but if they want to pay me for saying that, (laughs) I'm I'm game. like I get hey, I've been looking for of, a, I'm looking for I've been looking for a show sponsor maybe we can do a little collaboration <laughs> <right? Yeah. laughs> that sport if you're listening <laughs> I get nothing by promoting this but I do just genuinely like like what um their products and it's it's very affordable and, and easy to implement any practitioner can do this have the athlete give it to a teammate who can wear it for a week of training now you see at least what a typical week looks like um so if you can't have baseline data from the athlete that you're working with, then at least that gives you something. No, I love that. I, looping back for a second, you mentioned hamstring injuries, and that popped in my head then. And I was curious, 
do you is there a higher incidence of hamstring injuries in males compared to females or is it pretty stable across we the board? don't know because oh, really? all of the most of like 99 percent of the research on soccer injuries in sports medicine in general is done on male athletes not female so all of the numbers and statistics that we have is based on the men's game not the women's game um anecdotally i think and to be fair like the uh, the football research group in Sweden, they do the UEFA Champions League study, which puts, is like a massive epidemiological study that's been going for over 20 years now with Champions League teams in Europe. And they track injuries and load and every other thing that you match congestion, everything you can think of, they, they are tracking um, and have been for, for decades. And they have started doing that in the Women's Champions League. I think they started two or three years ago. Oh, very so, nice. good. So that will be coming. And it's starting to come out more and more. Um, I know that NWSL like, has their own data that they haven't necessarily published, but they have it. Um, and then each club probably, hopefully, is, is tracking their own metrics as well. So we don't know. Anecdotally, I will say that um, I've seen just as many female soccer players with hamstring injuries as male soccer players. Um, not quite as, so another really common injury in male soccer players is um, groin pain and, and adductor related pain, adductor injuries. I don't see that quite as often in female soccer players, but what I do see more of in female soccer players is hip flexor and quad muscle injuries. Um, so that's like purely anecdotal. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, selection bias because I'm, I'm only pulling from the people that I've seen. So, um, I, I hopefully that research comes out soon. But, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, I find that – I find it very interesting. I would just be curious because I've, I've just heard, like, a few studies here and there that talk a lot about, like, tendinopathy and stuff like that will reference – you know, the, you know, difference in stiffness between male and female, like tendons, ligaments, whatever. Um, and then sometimes they'll throw in there, like, and this is, you know, why we see more hamstring pulls in men than I'm like, is that so? Like, I, I don't, I don't know about all this. Yeah, so, I, I, haven't, <laughs> you know? I haven't seen a, a, a study that would show that there was one study out of the um, German women's uh, pro league, but it was just a one year, maybe a two, maybe a two year, um, prospective study. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, the data is coming. We just don't have it yet. Maybe there's more in men. I, I could understand, like, it's plausible. I would understand why that would be, but, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no worries at all. Yeah. I was just, just curious if you'd heard anything about that. Cause it's definitely like an interesting, uh, an interesting concept that, that yeah it's kind of like always said like oh male soccer players have more hamstring injuries and female soccer players have more ACL, ACL and, bo yeah. and, and bone <laughs> injuries but like I don't know that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no for sure for sure um couple just real quick hitters to wrap up um current thoughts on the current soccer landscape in the United States compared to other countries like I've talked a lot about this here where I work right now because there's a couple people like heavily invested in soccer and they just always seem so sad <laughs> about, <laughs> about the, just our standing in, in the world. Um, and not even necessarily from like the men's team being unsuccessful or the women's team being successful or anything like that, more just the general 
landscape at the lower levels and how, um, I guess it's just disheveled and discombobulated it is. Yeah. Uh, just from I mean, a I, consistency standpoint. I do think a big problem historically has been that soccer is a upper middle class sport. Um, you know, it, it costs a lot of money to have your kid play for a good team. Um, when, kind of when I was in high school was like the advent of the academy system when you were paying $1,200, $1,500 a season for your kids to be on one of these teams. And I mean, that was a huge number then. I'm sure it's gone up significantly since then. That oh, was 20 yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, I, I think that's been a problem because I think it's kept a lot of our natural talents out of the game or not necessarily even out of the game, but out of, out of sight. Um, so being unable to be looked at by colleges um, or potential pro scouts. Now, having said that, I am very optimistic about the future of soccer in our country. If we look at some of the American, the young American players on the men's national team who are products of the American system, the U.S. youth soccer system, and they're playing at world-class teams in Europe. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, Gio Reyna, who's playing for Borussia Dortmund, Christian Pulisic, who turned 22 today, actually, um, well, or yesterday. Birthday. Yeah. <laughs> and he is wearing the number 10 jersey at Chelsea. Um you know, we have DeAndre Yedlin, who's been playing at Newcastle. Um, we have people signing for Serie A teams, just like La Liga teams. We've got a, a young player over in Barcelona, a young player just signed with Juventus. So, yeah, I think it's – I mean, that's huge for us. Um, and I think it will continue to grow. The MLS is growing. There's three or four expansion teams coming to market in the next couple of years. So I think that's huge. Um, and if we look at some of like the soccer specific stadiums that are being built, like Austin FC, it, they're going to be a new MLS team. They sold out their season tickets. Like they, they don't, the stadium's not done yet and they've sold out wow. their season tickets. Wow. Yeah. Um, St. Louis, uh, St. Louis in Missouri, the St. Louis FC, that's going to be a new team. I think they've done the same thing recently. So it's growing and it's going to continue to grow. The NWSL is adding a new team this season as well, racing Louisville. Um, they'll be adding the LA team. They'll be adding a team in Sacramento probably. So it's, I think it's continuing to grow. Um, and I'm super optimistic about the future of it. Um, so how how has the U.S. women's team been able to experience so much success compared to the men's? Is there any differences in what's going on between each side of the coin, or what's what's your thoughts on that? I think it's because we were early adopters. Um, you know, whenever somebody is is the first to a market, they're going to be the best for a long time. Um, so we were one of one of the first good teams. Um, being in the United States for all of our country's inherent flaws, um, at least, you know, women were able to play because of Title IX, um, were able to play sports and play soccer um, long before many other countries allowed women to play soccer. I see. Okay. Um, so because of that, we kind of had a head start. Um, but also, 
kind of, I think that there is a little bit of a mentality difference in, in women versus men soccer players in the United States. I, it's probably true for most of the world as well. I think women soccer players in general have had to prove their value for so long that there's just like this inherent grit and fighting spirit of like, I'm worth it. I'm worthwhile. Um, and I think that that's, that's built into the culture of women's soccer now. Um, and, and I, I don't know that that's built necessarily built into American men's soccer. Um, because I think the value has always inherently been given to male athletes and, and not historically given to female athletes. And so um, I think that that's a big difference and, and maybe part, at least part of the reason why the women's team has been so successful and the men's team has not. Um, and also, of course, there's the age-old argument of like, will all of our best male athletes play other sports? And like, there's probably some truth to that as well. But um, yeah, I, I think the future is bright for American soccer, though. No, that's good to hear. Yeah. And it's soccer's definitely never been like a sport I follow as closely. But the more I've gone down the strength and conditioning route and just un, like trying to embrace reverse engineering and just getting to know sports better soccer just there's just such a wealth of information compared to a lot of the other sports out there on it so yeah, I think I just yeah. read something recently I think that soccer <clears throat> excuse me for as far as sports medicine and performance research is concerned soccer I think is like the most well-researched sport out there um globally for sure um Nicole just to wrap up, I do want to make sure you kind of get out there what you do for anyone listening that might be interested in utilizing your services or anything like that. I think you have some online products now um, as do. well. And uh, so anything you do either in person or online, any social media or projects you're working on, please have at it and share with us. Yeah. So um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. Nicole PT. And on Twitter, I'm at Ncertica Physio. Uh, I wasn't consistent with that. Apologies. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's because like I made my Instagram name, and then I was like, oh, I don't want to keep it that, so I changed it up for Twitter and made it something better. <laughs> um, so yeah, on on those platforms, I or on on Instagram primarily, I try to post educational content, um, just like like general information about soccer-related injuries and performance training. Um, on my website, I have a blog that's NicoleCerticaPhysio.com. Um, and yes, blog about same type of things like re rehab and performance training um, for all athletes, but I, I gear it towards soccer players, but principles apply across sport, really. Um, and I teach a course, I, I have two courses actually. So the, the first one is ethical return to sport decision-making. Um, and that of course, yeah, talks about the return to sport decision-making process and kind of the ethical dilemmas that we face in that process. Um, and it counts for CEUs for athletic trainers and physical therapists. Um, you can find that on my website. And then that, in a few days, actually, um, the 23rd to the 26th, I'm my course that I used to teach in person all the time, pre-COVID, managing the uninjured soccer player, I will be teaching live virtually. Um, so that's the September 23rd to 26th uh, for four hours each day. 
and anyone who signs up will be sent a recording. So if you can't make it, um, can't commit to all four days, then yeah, you just will get the recording. Um, and that is also on my website. Nice. Thank you so much for this, Nicole. It's actually been super awesome. Um, honestly, I probably could keep going, but we both have a lot. Oh, I don't know. I don't have a life. You probably have a life. So. <laughs> my, my life tonight is I'm going to get a pint of ice cream. Oh, let's <laughs> go. Actually, I just remembered. I just remembered that Whole Foods is $6 large pizzas. And that Ooh, is what, you that know, is I wanted happening. pizza so bad tonight. I ended up having cauliflower gnocchi, which isn't oh, the same as pizza. That's but. so much healthier, though. <laughs> Honestly, like I'm, I'm just now that I'm in Santa Barbara, I've been here for like three months, and like every food option's amazing. I'm really surprised that I have not ballooned up to just an enormous level. But I'm not. I am not. I'm still good. So <laughs> I need the whole the pizza tonight. <laughs> exactly. I think it's the nature of our jobs. Like with all the demonstrations and stuff, like you you can't really gain too much weight. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, to be honest, too, we're in a. St I'm doing a study right now where I'm at, like an in-house study. And mm -hmm. uh, it involves squatting twice a week. So, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm fine. you're good. Yeah. Good. yeah. <laughs> you don't need to do anything else. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Um, we'll definitely have to do this again. And thanks a lot for coming on the show. Definitely. Thanks so much, Jack. Absolutely.